the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Any parent knows how it can be a struggle to get their children to eat healthy foods. And for some parents, the struggle can be to afford healthy foods for their children, or for that matter, any food. We've examined the issue of food insecurity among indigenous communities and also for those of color. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we examine a program called Little Sprouts that was founded in Denver, Colorado. It's designed to help such parents and to persuade children that eating healthy foods can be both tasty and also fun. So it's our good fortune to have with us today uh, Lily Styrer from the Slow Food Denver office and specifically the Little Sprouts program. Lily, that sounds so fascinating uh, and we want to hear more about it, but it strikes me that uh, I know you have quite a background in the culinary arts and there's rarely, I know this from my experience, there's rarely a direct path from where you start to where you end up or where you are right now. What led you from where you started, and if you can elaborate a little bit more to that, more on that, uh, what led you to the Little Sprouts program? Thank you for for the lovely welcome. Um, I grew up in Eastern Washington, um, in the Trace Cities, and my parents were avid gardeners. Um, my dad foraged for asparagus, and they canned food, and everything that we were kind of, especially in the summer, eating um, came from the earth, came from our garden, came from farmers markets, and so. That was that was my childhood experience. And growing up in the 80s, I realized that wasn't necessarily the normal experience of my peers. Um, I went to the University of Washington. Um, I studied political science. Um, and then I, I took a little bit of a pivot, moved to San Luis Obispo, California. And down there, um, got just immersed in kind of the farmer's market scene and, and all of those things um, that, that I didn't experience as much in college just because I was focused on my studies. Um, but I became a personal chef, um, started a business there, um, then met my husband um, and we moved to um, we moved to Colorado. Um, I started uh, my personal chef business there as well. And I really always the one of the things that I realized with my clients is that, you know, they they were time strapped. They um, wanted to be eating a little bit better, but they were really not connected to the seasons. And mm -hmm. so that really became my focus is how to, to always be providing my clients with foods that, that are coming from our local farmers as much as possible. So that's always been the spirit of my work. Um, we eventually moved to Tucson for a couple of years and the, the food scene there is just really incredible. The way mm -hmm. that they are connected to the earth, um, I ended up becoming the uh, Tucson Food Day um, coordinator. And so I helped with a few events um, down there. They're were, uh, they were actually pretty big events. Um, but part of that was the connection of the farmers, the restaurants, um, mm -hmm. the local food scene, just sort of how we're interweaving it together. And at the time, I, I had a, a young child. So I was doing all of this with um, my daughter on my hip. 
Um, and then um, we moved back to, to Colorado. Um, and when she was school age, when my son was um, coming into preschool, um, the school um, was looking for an after school program. Mm -hmm. So I immediately rose my hand. I was like, this is the perfect job <laughs> to have. Um, I would love to teach my own children um, and their, their peers. And so I actually started my own um, class um, with the kids school garden, teaching them how to cook. And then after doing that for about a year, um, that summer, I saw an advertisement for Slow Food Denver, basically offering the exact same program mm -hmm. um, within, within the Denver community. And I was like, you need to hire me. Like, I need to be with you. <laughs> um, so I started, um, I started with them in 2018 um, as an instructor. And then just a few months ago, starting um, in January 2023, um, I became the executive director. And some of that work that I had done in Tucson, um, as well as that degree I have in political science has really kind of come together um, into this role that I have now as executive director. But um, mm -hmm. the Little Sprouts program is really near and dear to my heart. And I have a lot of, I've taught a lot of children now through it. So um, yeah, that's kind of my whole history. <laughs> well, working with the kids, uh, do you have a, what is your sense of where they think food comes from? And has that changed over the years, say from when, going way back when I was a child and when you were a child, how has that changed in their conception and how does that impact the way they view food and the way that they seek to use food? Yeah, I, you know, I think food is intimidating for not only children, but a lot of adults. Um, we, we've kind of developed this incredible restaurant scene where, um, a lot of people just eat out. Um, it's simpler, it's easier, we're all time strapped. So I, mm -hmm. on one hand, understand that. Um, we do surveys with the children, not at, sometimes at the beginning, but mostly um, at the end to just see and gauge where, where things are. And that's one of the questions we ask is where does your food come from? Mm -hmm. So certainly a lot of them are saying the store. I think my favorite answer is when they say from my mom. Um, I feel like that's very sweet and dear. Um, <laughs> But, um, but definitely there's, um, sometimes children will say from Mexico, which I'm like, that's not wrong. Nope, <laughs> a lot nope. of our food is coming from Mexico. So it's, it's always interesting to sort of see, um, where, where they're, they're thinking it's coming from, but mm -hmm. certainly after these classes, we're seeing a lot more children saying, you know, from the earth, from a garden, um, all of the things that we're really, you know, subtly and sweetly beating into them, I guess. Um, and through our classes, um, just that repetition of talking about how our food, almost all of our food originates as a plant, whether it's an animal eating the plant or not. And so that concept of, um, that all of our food is sourced from the earth at the very least, whether it's coming from a farmer's market, our gardens, or from the store. Maybe you could just describe for us a little bit about what the slow food approach and philosophy is. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so slow food was started in Italy in the 1980s as a counter movement to a McDonald's that they were trying to um, bring there. And I love that it started in Italy and I, and I love how, um, how they, how they approached it. Um, they approached it with food as well. And just this concept of, I think the simplest way of explaining what slow food is, is it's the opposite of fast food, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the concept that um, our, our slogan is good, clean, fair, 
food for all. And mm-hmm. just as you said, so much of our food comes wrapped in plastic wrap and we don't call it pig or cow. We call it pork. Right. Or like we've literally changed the words and we've disconnected ourselves. And I think that's been you know a long process of coming to that point. Um, but when you really look at how simple it is to actually prepare the simplest meals for yourself and really nourish yourself, um, that's kind of the overall um, intention of slow food. You know, the locavore and the local food movement sometimes has this um, idea that it's that it's like fancy or expensive or ritzy, and I and and I think there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, especially when we're when we're working with children at the heart of it, and we we get down to just the nitty gritty of like you can take this seed and plant it and grow it and then eat it, and being able to really walk through that process with them, whether we have a garden with them or not, we're using all of that language and speaking to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when we're we're simplifying it, and it's no longer. Um, it's no longer requiring someone else to be in charge of your food system. It's empowering children to know that they are a part of their food system and that they have some agency. in it. Mm-hmm. This disconnect that you and that slow foods uh, in general have been seeking to address has some very real consequences uh, in terms of children's health and development. What have you found in Colorado? And maybe you've got a sense of what the statistics are, what the picture is on a broader sense, not necessarily in Washington, but also in the broader United States. Yeah, I think the numbers that I um, that I know are um, and it's it comes from Feeding America, which is a really incredible, reputable source for food Mm -hmm. security in our country. Um, But about nine million children in the U.S. are, are food insecure, facing hunger. Um, that translates in Colorado to one in nine children. Um, so that statistic has moved in the last few years, which is which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one in eight in Washington State. Wow. Yeah. Could you define that a little bit more for us, exactly what food insecurity means? Yeah, it, it basically it means not knowing where your next meal will come from. Wow. Having an empty fridge, um, having, you know, parents who are struggling to actually bring food into their kitchen. I, my, my husband actually grew up food insecure, um, and had a, a free lunch as a child. And, um, he, he often just looks into our fridge and, and sometimes he'll be like, what are, what are you doing exactly? Like, there is nothing new in the fridge. And he's like, <laughs> I'm just so pleased to see that we have a full fridge. Yeah. He's like, Sometimes in my childhood, I would only see, you know, mustard and pickles or whatever it might be. And, you know, we're, we're at a time um, where, where SNAP is actually being reduced. That's um, essentially our food stamp program. Mm -hmm. Um, We had some increase because of uh, the pandemic and in the, in March. So this month that we're speaking in, um, they're actually looking at reducing that. So it's, a lot of families are relying on food assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious, and I want to get into the specific program you do in a moment, but I'm curious in your broader representation of the Slow Foods program, and you mentioned being able to put your political science background into play. Uh, as you talk to people who might not be 
initially supportive of some of these programs. Do you have some points that you can bring up for them that uh, illustrates how this is important to address these situations? I certainly could could imagine that there is an attitude at times that somehow people are able to access food um, in even if we're we're living in a time when um, wages are not matching um, the actual cost of living. That's a mm -hmm. huge concern here in Colorado. Um, one of my side um, gigs is I'm actually, uh, I serve on city council in my city of Edgewater. Um, and so that, that actually kind of comes to play a little bit in that role. Um, but just looking at um, living wages, we do focus a lot on making sure that farm workers um, are getting fair and equitable wages. So that's sort of the fair of our good, clean, fair. Um, but really, you know, we we live in in a country where we have more food waste than we actually have people receiving the food. And wow. so that is this incredible disparity. About, I've heard the statistics with food waste somewhere between 30 to 50%. Um, most food waste is actually coming from our own kitchens. And so that's something that that all of us really need to reflect and think about when when we're when we're preparing our own meals at home, um, and just you know how how can we pivot some of the conversations around empowering people to actually be able to afford their food? It's mm -hmm. not necessarily, especially um, women and children tend to be impacted more by hunger, and so how are we um, how are we really addressing that? And I feel that Little Sprouts does it in a, in a slightly different way um, in terms of really empowering children to understand um, how to cook, um, which I feel like has its own empowerment, but that really making sure that the food waste is going into the hands of people who need to and can't eat it um, is, is an important part. Well, you brought it up and that was going to be the next point I wanted to discuss. And that is that led to this program called Little Sprouts. Tell us a little bit about that. How does it work? Yeah, so we we teach um, starting in early education all the way, um, so preschool all the way up through twelfth grade. Mm -hmm. um, most of our classes tend to be in that elementary K through five range. We have about five or so classes that are middle school or higher, um, and we we teach anywhere from one to two classes for a school or an organization, um, all the way up to a, like a ten week session per season um, at each school. So that's kind of the the basics of of what we do. Maybe, Lily, work us through a sample day or a sample period uh, with the kids. What sort of things happen? If we were if we were going along with you to one of these schools, what would we see? Yeah, well, we're always looking for volunteers for our Little Sprouts <laughs> program. So I'll fly down. Yeah. We'll, we'll put you in as a volunteer. So, okay. so if, you were, if you were a volunteer of our program, um, you would come in, you would meet with the teacher and see that um, they have brought... Um, all of the equipment for the class, all of the food for the class. Um, we set up in a classroom environment. We set up in a cafeteria. Um, I'm trying to think of all the teachers' lounges. I've taught in a lot of interesting, interesting places. What we really need is an electrical outlet, a sink, and some kind of table to actually um, set up on. And I have taught the class on desks as well. So we're we're meeting schools where they are. We're not putting high demands or requirements. 
on them. If they have a school garden, we will do our best to utilize the school garden. And, you know, our, our school year here in the Denver area starts in August and runs through the end of May. And our growing season doesn't really match up very well with that because um, we have a little shorter season. Um, but we'll get out into the gardens and um, maybe do scavenger hunts to have children, you know, finding seeds or plants or bugs. Um, if we have fruit to harvest, we'll harvest that fruit or leaves or, or whatever it might be and bring it into the classroom environment as well. If a school does not have a garden, we're still talking to the children about plants and the parts of the plants that we eat. Um, I have a series of classes that I've taught where we start with leaves. We talk about all the different types of leaves that we can eat. I might bring in a plant with herbs so we can see that that's a leaf and how we eat it. And we set up, the kids come and join us. Sometimes I'll start a class asking, um, I often we'll do kind of like an introductory question of like, what's your favorite fruit? Mm -hmm. And every child shares what their favorite fruit is. Um, and then it'll circle back to me and I'll say, my favorite fruit is a tomato. And then eyes get wide because we don't normally think of a tomato as a fruit, but it gives me that opportunity to then right. transition to talking about how when I wear my chef hat, I often call a tomato a vegetable um, and a zucchini a vegetable. And then we we talk about all the different types of fruits that are um actually vegetables. Um, and so that leads into the class, um, at least in that particular case, sometimes it's not as, you know, well connected. Um, but, but just that opportunity to, you know, talk then about what makes a fruit a fruit, it comes from a flowering plant, it, um, and then we can even talk about, you know, do strawberries grow on, how does a strawberry grow? It grows close to the ground, not on a tree, you know, but there's other berries that grow on something more bush-like and just that always connecting the food to the natural cycle of growth. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if we're bringing in um, like a recipe to make pancakes, we'll bring in all different types of flowers and really giving the kids to play with the different types mm -hmm. of ingredients. So it's an experiential journey it's not just me bringing a recipe and having all of us follow a recipe together i'm i want the kids to experience bringing ingredients together in the ways that feel and taste right to them which is again empowering and then opens up the possibility that when they go home to their own kitchens there is that possibility that they can bring foods together as well and I believe we have some reactions from some of the children who have been in these classes, and perhaps we can just put a few of these uh, on air, as we'd say right now. And what I like about this class is that we ate vegetables. They're teaching me how to cook. Uh, Lily, let me ask you another question. I think uh, as a parent, uh, and I can think of a couple of examples of this, you know, we're always trying to 
persuade our children to eat certain things that maybe go against what's been marketed to them and that sort of thing. I remember we had a really good, we still have a really good uh, carrot soup recipe. And I literally have a written message on it that my son said, I will eat this when I'm six. And he's 38 right now. We finally got him to eat it. But um, how does this get around children's prejudices about food that are so often reinforced by what they see on television and the media? Oh, wonderful question. You know, it's not labeling foods is is important to me in the classroom mm -hmm. environment. Um, sometimes you'll hear parents saying, oh, this is healthy. It's good for you. You should eat it. <laughs> very, very unmotivating for a child. I think it's unmotivating <laughs> for me, honestly. Um, so, so the idea is to, you know, give them the journey of cooking. If I have a child who is, um, really struggling with it, like I bring the ingredients in and they're really like, they see something that's like trigger food for them. If, if that's happening, they'll, they'll often, you know, I'll hear some commentary and what I'll kind of <laughs> do to them as, I'll, I'll inform them, like, this is a cooking class. Like you're, it's always, always a choice, whether you want to, to eat the food or not. So this is a, like, let's play with the food. Let's mm -hmm. experience the food. All of the food that we're bringing into the class is going to be good for them. Like it's all healthy, delicious stuff. I always love to do my last class as a dessert, but even then I'm bringing in seasonal fruits. You know, there might be some chocolate with it, but making sure that that food isn't necessarily being given this label of good or bad, just the idea of children experiencing the food is mm -hmm. what we're going after and really empowering them to choose whether they want to eat it or not. One of my favorite classes that we teach is our salad tasting class. Um, and so we bring in all different types of greens. And the first thing I'll have them do is taste taste the spinach, taste the romaine. If they're feeling daring, I'll bring a little arugula for them to try. But bringing whatever greens I can kind of get my hands on that are interesting, right? I might have them organize it between sweetest to most bitter. So mm -hmm. they're not being um, demanded to, um, you know, consume this food. It's just an invitation to eat it. And then from there, we really talk about the five tastes for this salad tasting class. So then we taste the greens with a little bit of lemon juice on it. And then the experience of the acid on the green, does it taste, does it change the flavor? And so the kids really have to experience and taste whether it changes the flavor. Then we add like a couple of granules of salt and then they try it. And then a little couple granules of sugar because that's gonna change the flavor as well. And so once they, and then umami, we always talk about umami because it is the most fun word. And it's a word that some of their parents don't know. So they get to go home and share that new word. So I'll bring in a little bit of grated Parmesan and then they get to try the umami. And the idea is to have them not only engaging with food, tasting foods that they might not normally, mm -hmm. but seeing how an, another food will impact and change it. And then we finish the class with them making their own salad dressing. Um, I bring in all the vinegars and all the different acids and give them all sorts of choices and they team up, they make the vinaigrette together. And then they, tr they dip their greens in and try it and see how it changes the flavor again. But this is the class that I 
hear from parents the most about. Mm -hmm. um, parents will, will call me and be like, so my child's eating salad now and trying to make salad for dinner every night. And I'm like, yes, have them raid the pantry and find the vinegars and, and do it up the way that they would love to present this to their family. And much of our viewers, not the podcast listeners, but the uh, program viewers are here in Seattle. If they want something like this, uh, if they want to start a Little Sprouts program, how could they go about that? Some of our staff has uh, created years before I even came into Slow Food, um, the Slow Food curricula. And it we have it's called Good and Clean. And both of those um, can be downloaded for free from Slow Food USA. Um, but, you know, even just parents at home inviting their kids to get messy in the kitchen. I have two kids and I don't always do that, but whenever I do, um, things change and pivot in our house. And they've been in a lot of my cooking classes too. So, um, but, but that bringing the kids in, letting them experiment and play, um, is a, is a huge part of it. And we, Slow Food USA has an incredible amount of information on school gardens in general, um, as well. Does this help with some of the value of getting them to sit down and experience not only the food, but just time with each other. Yeah, I, I think there's an incredible amount of research out there showing that the families that, that eat together stay together. I it it does matter. It's something that my husband and I have to be really, really intentional about. And mm -hmm. now that our children are 12 and nine, um, it's getting hard. It is getting harder and harder. Yeah. Um, it's a balance, you know, I, I have a job and my children, my daughter does ballet and it, it's there, there are still schedules that need to be contended with, but at least looking in, at your schedule and, and, and scheduling it, scheduling dinner with the family and being intentional about it. Well, this has been really inspirational, Lily. I thank you so much for setting aside time. I suspect if I came down and volunteered with you folks, I'd actually maybe become more accepting of beets, which is something I sort of push aside. But thank you so much. And I suspect this is going to get a lot of people, I know it's going to get a lot of people thinking about it and looking for how they can adopt a similar program up here. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I'm, I'm just thrilled at the idea of people beyond the Denver metro area even considering this possibility. So feel free to, to reach out to us in Denver um, at, our, at our website and, and our email, and I, I'm happy to talk it through with anyone. We'll do this. And thank you all of you for joining us on this episode of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week.